you're listening to a new episode of Empathy Always Wins. Philip, thank you so, so, so much for joining Empathy Always Wins. Um, just before we start the show, typically one thing I always ask for from our interesting and, and unique guests is to kind of to have them sort of talk about themselves a little bit to kind of give the audience uh, much more of a perspective as to who they are and what they do before we kind of dive deeper into the, 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 the nuances of the show. So, Philip, the mic is yours. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a really great to be here. What would you like me to talk about? Like my personal background and history or like about absolutely. the company? Or about, absolutely. Yeah? Absolutely. I'd love to just sort of dive in before we sort of dive in upon a pontian. Yes. Um, so I'm originally from the UK, actually. I was born in the UK and then spent the first sort of five years of my life in South Africa. And then um, my, so my father was a diplomat, so moved around a bit as a kid. Then was back in the UK, studied undergrad in... Uh, the north of England, a school called Nottingham, then did a master in mathematical finance in New York, uh, Columbia University. Um, then I spent five years as a currency derivatives trader at BNP Paribas. Um, so two years in London, oh, wow. um, two years in Singapore in a year and a bit, a bit of time in New York. Um, and then I uh, went to, I, I, I basically was in Singapore. I quit my job on a Friday and I moved to South Africa and I started working as an intern at a VC fund on the Monday. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, and then I did that, I did that for like a year. Um, it started to not be an intern after a while. Um, <laughs> then I went to grad school in the US. Um, so I did a joint MBA, MPA. The MBA was at Wharton and the MPA was at Harvard Kennedy School um, in my in my summer day or so. Did some OVC in Kenya. Um, and then I worked. And then immediately after that, I went to McKinsey in Dubai. Where I was doing post-merger integrations, uh, some other kind of financial work, and then I started a Pontia about a year and a half ago um, in Dubai, and we launched then in Saudi, Turkey, and Poland. We've got about 100 people split fairly evenly across those locations now. Um, we have made we basically buy and then grow e-commerce brands. Um, so we've bought 10 brands so far, um, and the idea is, you know, yeah, it's. For the sellers, oftentimes they reach a point where e-commerce sellers, in particular, where they've started a successful brand, but they don't really want to do do the grind of of scaling it, which is all the logistics, operations, sourcing, pricing, working capital management, all this stuff. Um, and we that's what we're good at. So 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 it's so an attractive proposition for the sellers, but we come along and we scale it, and then we give them some share in the growth in profit over the following you know few years after we've bought it. I mean, that's quite fascinating. I think that you have, uh, I mean, you've invested so much into your education uh, and, and in multiple fear, uh, multiple fields. Can you talk a little bit about like, were they intentional in you starting your entrepreneurship journey or was it just all a mistake or were you just following your curiosity? Because I think for many people listening to you today, it's almost like, what is this guy? Is he a mastermind <laughs> of this or is it? Is it just... Uh, is it is it is it curiosity and 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 it's just very fascinating to hear you say exactly how you how it unfolded. Um, um, I wouldn't say. Yeah, no. To be honest, it it wasn't really with an end in mind. It was it wasn't like a means to an end. It was like an end in itself, if that makes sense. So, 
I, I knew I wanted to go back to the US to do an MBA. So my first master's, I wouldn't really count because it was, it was like a year-long master's. Uh, in the UK, you only do a three-year undergrad. So essentially, I've spent four years doing math, which is a bit like what you would do in a four-year undergrad in the US. Um, my second master's, I was applying to, I knew I wanted to do an MBA in the US. Um, and to be honest, just because I thought it would be like a fun and interesting experience, it, I, I didn't think it was actually going to help me that much with my career. Um, and it, it was a really fun and interesting experience. So <laughs> from that perspective, it worked out, but it also actually ended up helping me more than I expected with my career. Um, so yeah, so when I, yeah, when I was in Singapore, essentially I was applying to business schools and that's one of the reasons I went to do, to do VC in South Africa is because I was like, well, I can stay doing my job here and not learn anything for another year before I go to do my MBA, or I can do something a bit different and try and learn something. Um, and so that's when I went to do VC for a year. Um, but no, to be honest, it, it wasn't a means to an end. It was just, I thought it sounded interesting and cool. Um, yeah. And like the MPA at Harvard, it was like the classes in an MBA program are kind of dull. Um, the people and the speakers and the social life are all great. Um, but the actual classes are like tax accounting and, you know, marketing and stuff is not the market. Actually, I've got nothing against marketing, but, um, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like having an appreciation of marketing, having started an e-commerce company, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's not like the classes in, in, in Harvard Kennedy school where it's like, you know, we had like the UN ambassador teaching one class about conflict resolution, or we had, um, you know, the leading expert on climate change teaching about, uh, you know, new technology for addressing climate change, you know, stuff that's like actually properly interesting. So I, I honestly thought I can't, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than spend two years at Harvard discussing interesting topics with interesting people. So, and I, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a cost element and a time, what do you call it? There's opportunities cost and also financial cost, although there's some you know, scholarships available. But uh, I, I, my, my rationale was I don't think on my dying deathbed I'm going to be like, I don't think I'm going to be like struggling to feed myself. So, um, you know, why not? Like if I can find a way to pay for this and I'll, I'll try and figure it out. And I think the biggest thing that brings me to, you know, this uh, next sort of uh, dialogue between us is, I, I, I still can't crack how you launched Apontia. Uh, can you walk us through that journey? <laughs> I can. I think you've, you've, you've probably engaged with so many fascinating people. Uh, I've only been to Harvard twice uh, for, for, for numerous, uh, for, for two events. Uh, met some, the most fascinating people there. Can't imagine spending two years there. So I, I, like, where did it come up from? Did you spot a gap? Did you meet someone interesting in McKinsey while you're in Dubai? Did, yeah. Like, what was the, aha, Yanni? What, what was that turning lever point? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one thing I would say was very, very intentional is going to McKinsey. So I did know I wanted to do a startup and I wanted it to be a unicorn. Like I was like, I want to, I don't want to like do a slow business. I want to create a really fast growing business. And so I did some research and I was, you know, like I looked at where most unicorn founders had come from. The, like the, the majority of them have not come from traditional business, but of the ones that have come from traditional business. And, oh, and by the way, this is a statistical anomaly that is often quoted. It's something along the lines of, uh, the, this, the, the dumb thing that people quote is they say most unicorn founders didn't go to the Ivy league. Therefore you don't need to go to the Ivy league to be a unicorn founder. 
And what they forget is what is the sample size of all people who didn't, what is the percentage of all people who didn't go to the Ivy League versus all people who did go to the Ivy League that create unicorns. And the ones that went to the Ivy League have about a 500 times higher chance of founding a unicorn than the ones that didn't go to the Ivy League. So yes, it's not true that you need to go to the Ivy League to found a unicorn, but your chance of founding one if you do go to the Ivy League is about 500 times higher. So <laughs> it's like, which one do you want? Um, <laughs> and I, so, so like, so, I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm not a, an education snob. I don't think they teach you anything particularly profound there, but like, there's a, I mean, there's a, like, there must be something in the water or something that they're doing right to, to make that work. And, you know, so it mainly comes down to the network. Um, but with McKinsey, I looked at all the companies which um, produce the highest number of unicorn founders per employee, and McKinsey is by far the highest. The next is Google, and the next is uh, like Bain or BCG or one of the others. Uh, Google produces the absolute highest, but per employee, McKinsey produces the highest. So if you want to give yourself the highest statistical chance of founding a unicorn, there's a lot worse things you can do than go spend two years at McKinsey. Um, and so that's what it did. And it, to be honest, that's exactly how we got the funding. So our first VCs were all, you know, were ex-McKinsey people. Um, I got the idea because I was staffed on an e-commerce project and I was reading, there was a big article in the Financial Times about these e-commerce roll-ups at the end of 2020 about Thrasio and this. And I, and I just wondered why it wasn't existing in the Middle East. Um, and, and so, yeah, I started have, having some conversations with VCs. To be honest, it took a week to raise a three and a half million dollar seed um, from scratch with no deck, no no model, no. Just like, hey, we know there's potential wow. here. Here's how, many, here's how many sellers there are in the region. There's nobody buying. This is the multiple they trade for. We we can launch this. And like any VC that sort of knows the model and knows whatever they you know they're just in. Like they they didn't need much convincing convincing. But what they were helpful with was putting me in touch with my co-founder, Manfred, because I know about finance and acquisition finance in particular and entrepreneurial finance, but I didn't know much about e-commerce. And yeah. so my co-founder, Manfred, is the like e-commerce guru who actually runs the business, runs these brands after we've acquired them. How, how, how did you make a decision that he was the right fit? Because I think oftentimes you find really intelligent people or really, really, really competent people in one area, but in another area, you just don't know where to find your co-founder. So I think... You know, you you almost made it sound very simple, but was it really that simple, or were you? I see. It was. It was. He, he has the perfect profile for what we do, and I'll say he he picked me more, as much as I picked him. So it's not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't pick. Put it. Put it. Uh, in, in, you know, you need directionally. But I mean, the guy was the chief commercial officer of the biggest e-commerce company in Iran. Before that, he was chief marketplace officer of the biggest e-commerce company in Southeast Asia, uh, and he founded his own e-commerce enabler. Um, and it managed big teams of like, you know, hundreds of people. I mean, the guy is like, has the perfect profile for what we do. So, okay, okay. and like, yeah, we went for a drink and we discussed management styles and all this type of thing and see if we get along and see how we do conflict, conflict resolution. And you're looking for a diverse skill, found, a founding team with diverse skill sets and our skill sets pretty much as perfectly as possible complemented each other for this business model. Actually, there's one Y Combinator video which says as a founding team you shouldn't be looking for a great idea you should be looking for the the idea that best fits with your founding team's skill sets and that is definitely um that is definitely true 
and I think you, you know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you guys uh, had a record in your in your next raise. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how did you guys do it? Yeah, I think we we're the fastest. Like, yeah, I think we we went from zero to a ton of money faster than any other company in the Middle East. So we raised forty two million dollars Series A about nine months after we'd founded. Um. I mean, part of it, to be frank, is a function of the business model. And so we're acquiring. So really what we're doing, it's a bit like we're fundraising for a fund rather rather than we're, I mean, and, and secondly, secondly, it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of debt and equity. So it's $25 million of equity and $17 million of, no, the other round, 25 debt, $17 million of equity. But even still, a $17 million Series A of nine months after you've um, founded is still like super fast. But I mean, pe people just could see that there was potential. At the time, <laughs> I will say I will say this: at the time that we raised the Series A, and I'll give full credit to our Series A lead, which was uh, STV, and also Ratted put in, uh, you know, were very helpful. But they backed us when we had almost zero revenue with this seventy million dollar check, and you know that's a that takes some conviction. So full credit to them. Now, you know, like 11 months after we've done the Series A, we went from zero to having $15 million run rate revenue in November. Um, so it's it's paid off, but it was, uh, at the time it was, in hindsight, maybe a bit of a risky bet. Very big risk, a very big risk. And I think one thing a lot of younger people maybe listening to this show are asking, what what is it that VCs are now looking for, especially after this bubble kind of burst? You know, a lot of people are... Are going after growth, almost blitzscaling at all costs with very poor unit economics. I mean, you've obviously done <laughs> two kind of, I would say, historic from the region standpoint, two very historic raises, whether it's the 42 uh, Series A or, or 40 whatever Series A, or if it was the sort of one week raising a, a 3 million seed. That, that, that's just that's just very, very, very difficult to turn around. But given given your average Joe with a very unique idea that has a quite significant uh, market, uh, uh, what would you, what, what, what what's one thing you would yeah. guide? I would say you need one of two things. You can't do it without either one of these two things. You need either an extremely credible founding team or a lot of very convincing traction. If you don't have either of those two things, it's very difficult to raise now, particularly now. So for us, I'd say we were as credible a founding team. You could have some Manfred had already founded and built a successful company. He'd already worked for big e-commerce companies. Lazada, one of his companies, exited for three billion. Um, yeah, on my, on my side, I knew a lot about acquisition finance. Yeah. So I'd say we we were that. We didn't have any traction at that time, but I mean, for the Series A, we had a bit of traction. If you don't, yeah, if you don't have a, a super um, experienced founding team, they're not going to back your idea without traction. Yeah. So then you need like just a bunch of traction, basically. Which basically no code can be an amazing solution. And I think one thing I want to touch upon, yeah. you, you mentioned something that, you know, you simply said on the fly, but it was like, what the hell? To me, you went from like zero to nine months and you you scale. And now you, you're at 100 employees. As a leader, how do you handle that effective management style without chaos and stress? What is there... Like, like, what is there? What, what is what is your sauce? Or like, what is? I, I like. I, I, I like the presumption that there is not chaos and stress. 
There's ample amounts of chaos and stress. Um, so, I mean, it's more a question of how do you deal with chaos and stress rather than how do you try and scale without chaos and stress. Um, yeah, uh, I, I don't have an extremely good answer for that. Besides, actually, I, I listened to this amazing podcast with Charlie Munger the other day. Do you know Charlie Munger? Who's the, Absolutely. Uh, Berkshire, Berkshire, yeah. Yeah. He said something along the lines of the biggest mistakes anybody will make in their lives are when they forget what they're trying to do. And I, and I completely agree with this. So for us, the biggest mistakes we've made are when we focus on things that are not relevant to the business. Like for example, we have a messy, um, like breakup with an employee where they're unhappy about something, um, or where they like th this, this, this type of thing happens. Um, if we get all hard nosed and like say, okay, we're going to go to court and blah, 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 and all this stuff. That's not what we're trying. We're trying to build an e-commerce business. So at some point you have to just put your principles behind you. If you think you've been wronged and be like, it's fine. We'll, you know, we'll settle on whatever terms you want. Um, and you know, uh, like the same thing can happen with sellers in our case, but, uh, that, that's not what we're not going to be successful or not successful by squeezing a, a, a millimeter out of somebody here or there. Um, if, you know, or where they, they're trying to squeeze us and we give in sort of thing. So it, it, it's very important to just remember what the core thing you're trying to do is. And um, for us, that's build a house of e-commerce brands that consumers in the region love. Uh, yeah. Do you think that when you're going at such a fast pace, you get so many pulled in so many different directions that the hardest thing to do is focus, right? The hardest thing to do is to is to focus on that one sort of unique winning north star that you do not deter. It's almost like running a sprint. Usain Bolt. I, I was a professional swimmer in, uh, for all my life. It's, you know, I just uh, quit a, a few years ago, and I was a sprinter. And the, the coach, the coach would always tell me that the the moment you look, because I was a fly at fifty and hundred meter. The coach always used to tell me the moment you look right or left, you've lost the race. Um, so the moment you kind of actually. Mm -hmm. Because it's you're playing in the in the game of milliseconds, and whether you're uh, a startup or whether you're, I think you know, a fast-growing venture. I think it's almost similar to this analogy, or, or what I'm understanding from you is 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 quite the same. Um, is do you find uh, do you find the way Middle Eastern startups respond to fast-paced dynamics uh, efficient, and and what do you think needs to scale? In the mindset of entrepreneurs here in the region and and i not not to say that it's a downward look at entrepreneurs here no I, i'm talking about your experience having no. multiple markets and and almost in a, in a in a in an empowering way like like you say i don't i don't wouldn't um i wouldn't say the entrepreneurs in the region are, are fundamentally or systemically any different from entrepreneurs anyway anywhere you know i think the the trap of falling into so as much as people like to say it People often say startups, the good thing about joining a startup is that it's not political. And I personally, I think I disagree with this. I think startups can be, and often, you know, and, and in, in almost all cases, invariably are pretty political um, because there's not much like governance already in place. And so there's often jostling for position, this type of thing, even if you've got your head down and you're really powering through. And it's so important to, um, not get consumed by the daily office politics and the daily 
this, that, and the other, and just remember what you're trying to do. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. And um, I, I think that, that that advice applies to startups in the Middle East as much as it applies to startups anyway, really. I think you mentioned governance. Governance is something that I, I think we have a step, uh, you know, a step to kind of really tackle that here. I, I think governance uh, here in the in the region for majority of startups are, are very poor. We see we've seen that. Even though I'm a, I am a huge fan of Sovol, I'm a huge fan of many other companies. Without naming, you know, uh, dropping, but I mean, I love yeah. Sovol. Sovol CFO is one of my backward and power. But uh, you know, you're you're seeing so many different things happening to so many companies, uh, and and I think I genuinely think the structural government governance is poor at a at, at a very large scale we've seen many things blow up here and i think i, I truly hope that uh, we can understand that uh, uh moving forward especially for the younger folks out there that that, that think it's 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 almost a quick win or a get uh, rich quick um journey when, when it's far from that i think looking yeah. at what you've done and seeing how you're able to kind of uh, pull 3 million in, in a week or in nine months, pull, uh, pull your series. A. I mean, this is the accumulation of all the work that you've put in till this very point. And I think that it's, it's, it's very easy to kind of, uh, headline something without context. And I think we, 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 as younger people, we're very impatient. And that's part of why I personally feel very passionate about doing this show is to actually bring some context to the table and bring some spice. Um, uh, before we wrap things up, Philip, um, you know, what is your take on leadership and how do you see effective leadership in today's day and age? Um, um, I, I don't want to sound like a, like a parrot, but I think it's, it's pretty, it's ties back to what I just mentioned now about keeping your eye on what's important and, there's um, a professor at Harvard called Professor Heifetz, and he's always talking about the work. Um, uh, and if you keep the work at the center, then that's when effective leadership comes. And I, I think I buy into this a lot. Uh, I also buy into the notion that leadership is a choice and pretty much anybody can be a leader if you, if you decide to be. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think, I'm not a, a big believer in if you're some charismatic or particularly, you know, I, I, I pretty much think anybody can be a leader. You just have to decide that the goal that you're pursuing is worthy enough of you putting your time and energy, um, you know, and, and building a group of people around solving this challenge that you're trying to solve. Um, if you decide that, then, then anybody can be an effective leader. Philip, before we wrap up, we, I, I love Harry Stebbing's show. I always do this quick fire round. There are two questions. First of all, um, what's your favorite book or podcast and, and why? Ooh. Um... <laughs> I, I love the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> it, it Oh, interesting it's so diverse i learn something new every time on it like <laughs> yeah I, I love joe rogan i think he's, he's amazing uh what's that's one the, that's the first thing i've really thought about that question <laughs> i'm myself to give that answer but i've listened to a few really good ones recently yeah so. no, joe is uh he's uh he's a very woke individual and i and i love the the, the way he sees life and uh I, I think a lot of I, mean, I, I don't understand why the left seems to lambast him every so often, but I mean, I consider myself to be fairly liberal and fairly left wing, but he's, uh, for some reason, the left doesn't seem to like him, but 
can't really understand. He seems fairly liberal to me, but yeah, I, I think I think uh, you know we live in a in, in a day and age where cancel culture is very real, and I think you know when when you just find a concentrated group of people not liking you for some reason, they they appear to be a, a lot bigger than they actually are. But I don't I don't think they actually are uh, uh, that effective in stopping. I think Joe Rogan's uh, popularity and his impact is way bigger than the people who don't. I just think that for some reason the agenda of people not liking him is just uh, it appears to be a lot bigger. But um, I think. One last thing I want to ask you, Philip, before we wrap this yeah. up today is what's one thing you wish you told yourself, your 15-year-old self, uh, that you wish you knew now? My 15-year-old self was extremely lazy and bad at schoolwork. And <laughs> and I only really became uh, conscientious and hardworking in university. Um, and I did it. I have an identical twin brother. And when I was like 18, he got into Oxford and I didn't. And then I went to visit him in Oxford and I was like, oh shit, I like to, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh shit, I fucked up. Like I should have actually been trying all this time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think I would have told myself to to get my head down and um, and you can't see what's out there unless you sort of look up a bit. And, and uh, I didn't have any, you know, role model for my school or anything like that to look up to at that point. So I think I would have told myself to, open my eyes to what's possible what, at that age what, what's uh what's out there for you phillips in the next two years where do you see uh your or what are what are your ambitions in the next two years or three years for Pontia? before in the next two years um well we're gonna raise the series b right now um and then we'll uh launch new countries essentially so probably egypt next um pakistan nigeria on the cards um yeah, the idea is to scale this thing. We've proven it can work, and now we're just gonna keep growing. Amazing, Philip. I loved having you on. Your uh, your your story is quite unique. Your perspective is very unique. Our audience haven't heard uh, a, a, a unique that perspective before. Thank you so much for being on, and I genuinely appreciate all the work that you're doing and what you're bringing to this region. I think it's a uh, it's it's very inspiring, and uh, and 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 I'm I'm sure our listeners are. Are going to be very happy with uh, w- with with reaching out to you via email or, or finding you on LinkedIn and um, yeah, thank you. For so sure. much. Thank you for having me, and you, I think you're very sort of engaging into you. So keep it up, and like yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do feel free to share it with your friends drop us a rating on Apple subscribe to the show follow it on Spotify and we'll see you soon in a new episode of Empathy Always Wins take care and have a lovely day guys Thank you.